This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated books and comics show i am just one of the hosts here and bruce 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 huh dan have you seen bruce today no you know i actually checked that lump of clothes on the uh on the literary treks couch and i i thought he'd be there but uh he's nowhere to be found Hmm, that's really weird. Well, I hope he's got those droids working on the South Farting today, or they'll be hell to pay. <laughs> I'm just... Wait, oh, there's a note here. He's He's gone to Tachi Station again. Probably going <sighs> to pick up some power converters, as he calls it. Jeez, doesn't he know this is a Star Trek show? Come oh, on, Bruce. Man. Man, make your references relevant. Jeez. Well, uh, we're just kidding. We have a fantastic show tonight. We actually don't have any news today, so don't freak out. But what we do have is an incredible interview with John Jackson Miller coming up talking about his Prey trilogy. We'll be covering the whole thing with him as well as Hall of Heroes. You're going to love it. It's going to be huge. Uh, (laughs) Dan, you know, we're going to mix things up. Where can everybody find you online when uh, they're looking to talk to you about Star Trek books and that kind of stuff? Where are the places that they can find you? Oh, man. So many places. Terrific places. All over the place. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Productions. You can find me on Instagram at Kurtrats47. You can find me on the Babel Conference. That's our dedicated listeners-only show on Facebook. Uh, I'm there talking about Star Trek all the time. You know, basically, if I'm not eating, sleeping, or at work, I'm talking about Star Trek on the internet. Uh, how about you, Matt? Where can we find you? Well, you could find me on uh, Twitter as well, MattRushing02. And, of course, you could find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. Uh, I'm also doing The 602 Club, which is our general geek show, and we're talking about all things geeky. Uh, It's been a blast because there's been so much happening recently in the geek world. Uh, Some incredible stuff out there that we've been talking about, like Arrival, Fantastic Beasts, James Bond stuff, uh, Star Wars, of course. There's so much there, so please check out the 602 Club. And if you're a huge Star Wars fan, we have our special 602 Club Star Wars collection, and you can find that on iTunes as well. That's at Star Wars a 602 Club collection. That's what you'd look for. And it's all there for you. All those episodes that just Star Wars related are in that one feed. And uh, I do another show with my good friend John Mills where we talk about Star Wars all the time. 
It's called Aggressive Negotiations. You'll find that over on thenerdparty.com or, of course, on iTunes. Well, Dan, with no news, let's just jump into the feature and uh, talk to John Jackson Miller. Let's do it. Well, Dan, uh, this year has seen the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and there have been some big series. We had the Legacy series come out, and then John Jackson Miller dropped on us, I, I would say, just a doozy of a story with the Prey trilogy, and we finally reached the end of it, and that means we can finally have the man, the myth, the legend himself, John Jackson Miller here to talk about the entire thing, plus book three. It's going to be a spoiler finanza. Welcome back, John Jackson Miller. Hey, glad to be here. Hey, really happy to have you on this show. Uh, I think the word epic gets thrown a little bit around a little bit too much these days, but uh, this was an epic trilogy. So really happy to have you here to talk about it. No, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it, it, the the thing took about a year and a half, close to two years out of out of my life, and so it was uh, it was something I was waking up to every morning and going to bed with every night. And you know, it would be a real shame if it uh, you did all that and it didn't actually you know resonate with some people. So I'm glad it did. Well, you know, John, that's a lot of Klingons to be going to bed with every night. It's got to get crowded. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, it, of course, the, you know, the characters uh, barely had time to sleep in this book anyway, or this trilogy. That's I, true. <laughs> I'm going to keep referring to it as a book because really, as far as I'm concerned, it's three, uh, or, or it's three books, but it's three chapters of a single, you know, a single thing. So, uh, you know, that, that always gets complicated when people say, well, what's your favorite book? Or, you know, if we're going to put this book up for an award or something, what should it be? And it's like, well, we, it's a thing. I mean, you know, you know, Lord of the Rings, which is your favorite book of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, you know, nobody thinks that way. Uh, well, maybe they do. <laughs> but it's, uh, as far as I was concerned, you know, this was a three-act play around three three-act plays. Uh, and it sort of kind of got fractal there uh, on me. Well, and that's I think that's the cool thing about this uh, this story for me is that it did feel kind of like I would we call it the Lord of the Klingons. Well, series. It, it, um, it feels operatic in a sense, and so mm -hmm. what I did is when I got to the end of the first book, uh, and you know was working on the second, I went back and changed all of the the, the sections headers. So instead of being part one, part two, part three, it was Act One, Act Two, Act Three. Uh, instead of a prologue, it has a prelude. Uh, instead of an epilogue, it has a finale. And you know, in between the acts, you know, we have, uh, or in, in between, you know, book one, book two, book three, you know, we actually use what they would use uh, in an opera to, you know, say, you know, here's the here's the beginning of the next thing. Uh, you know, the the French term entract. That's the you know, in between the acts. You know, for the beginning of part two, it's the overture. And again, it wasn't about, you know, trying to be snobby about it or, you know, highfalutin or anything. It's just, we don't have the right words in fiction to actually say, okay, uh, this is the prologue of book two, but we admit and understand that the people who are going to be reading it in the future are probably going to be reading it all in one file, uh, you know, if, or, or, yeah. if it, or if it ever gets the destiny treatment where it's all in one book. It's going to feel weird to have an epilogue and then a prologue back to back uh, mm. in there. So, so yeah, we we hijacked. Uh, you know, you know, it's Klingons opera. We can use that. I think we we hijacked their terminology. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that too, because a lot of these 
like a lot of this story really felt to me like big set pieces and that sort of thing. And you can almost, you know, in the text, you know, read the stage directions, you know, Worf and Kalos exit stage left kind of thing. A lot of it really felt staged that way. <laughs> exit pursued by a bear, I think is what they used to say in Shakespeare. Uh, uh, and some days the bear gets you. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> well, and and the other thing that about that, and and I think this speaks to what, what Dan was just saying, and part of the, the what you had said uh, when you came on, kind of giving us the preview of, of where this story was rooted is that kind of Star Trek six type feel for the Next Generation crew. And I kept hearing the music from Star Trek six as well as host the planets as well running throughout my head. And that's very operatic and like it has deep resonance and themes and, and I could hear that music playing. And I think that's one of the things that uh, this felt like that kind of story. And I think you nailed it completely. Well, that's what I was trying to do. I mean, uh, you know, as we're recording this, it's you know a day after the 25th anniversary of, uh, you know, Trek six. And, you know, when I wrote the acknowledgements in the very beginning, you know, for the first book, I said, you know, that, that, you know, two of my favorite installments that obviously informed this were Trek three and Trek six. And, you know, the proofreader said Trek six, are you sure you didn't mean, you know, Trek two, because, you know, Hell's Heart uh, is our title. And, you know, there are all these con callbacks that are there with the unsung being on their planet. And I said, no, no, it's really Trek six. Uh, we are hitting the uh, Federation. We're hitting Starfleet in the 24th century with a Star Trek six style crisis where the thing that happens is even though it's not really their fault it's blamed on them and it's kind of a fair rap uh you know they could have stopped it you know if they had you know you know but you know check Valant uh, check valeris's uh uh you know uh, you know emails going out or something they might have had an idea what she was going to be <laughs> doing in trek six so yeah there there is there is sort of that sense of responsibility and certainly spock feels that responsibility himself all the way up through uh, to unification you know 100 years later so uh you know he he's you know that that is that is sort of there um, you know, this story went through a number of, uh, you know, evolutions, transformations from when I initially came up with the concept, but always there was going to be this notion that uh, there's going to be this thing that the Federation is going to get blamed for, you know, it's going to cause uh, a, a, a rift between them and the Klingons, and, you know, it's going to have to be solved in book three. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I haven't, you know, begun to get the behind the scenes thing ready to write up for, for my uh, website, faraway for these books. But when I get into it, you know, people will see that there are a number of uh, major, you know, things from, you know, when you, it's always a process. When you imagine how you want to tell the story you want to tell, you know, things will evolve. And the fact is, in the very beginning, we didn't have the unsung in the story. The group of characters that were going to be on the loose were actually going to be the hunters from the uh, Deep Space Nine episode. Uh, and we, oh, wow. and we kind of have a callback to them in book one. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to do something where, uh, you know, Ardra was always in it. Cross was always in it, although not exactly as himself. Uh, Shift was always in it as 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 herself, and book three always was going to be about Shift turning around 
you know, the big thing that happened in books one and book two in her favor and in favor of the Breen. So that was always going to be there. And, you know, Picard and Ardor were always going to have to work together in book three. But in, in the beginning, you know, I was looking for what is my, you know, rampaging group that I can actually have some, some fair, where, where they can do stuff and there would be a fair reason to blame the Federation. And I had thought about the, the hunters simply because, A, their technology was shown to be better than Starfleet's in that first episode, you know, where I think they're like the, the second species that comes through the wormhole in Deep Space Nine. But the other thing about them is, you know, our very first act after first contact is to, uh, you know, betray them. Uh, you know, O'Brien, you know, helps, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the prey that they're hunting you know, ambush them and uh, I think kill them. It's it's hard to actually see in that episode. Just all sorts of things follow after that. So we can imagine, you know, we haven't seen that group before. And I said, well, maybe we can use this group. And what I realized is that, you know, after some discussions, first of all, it would have required some fairly major mechanics to change what that race is I mean we you know we know from on the page what they were and we know a little bit from behind the scenes uh, about what their origin was supposed to be and whether they were connected to the founders in any way and all of this and I realized after talking with folks it just wasn't going to work and also they really weren't weighty enough uh, as as characters uh, to pull this off we would constantly be explaining to people here's who these guys are. Um, also, the Ardra part of it wasn't going to work because the Ardra character that we saw was venal and was a con artist and was a criminal, but we never actually saw her be murderous. We never actually saw her kill a bunch of people. And the character that I had that was going to be kind of handling all that in my original thinking was this cross character. And I said, well, why don't we just go ahead and make this there be this entire second subplot about this magician's cast that exists uh, so that, you know, I can draw on all of the deceivers, all of the magicians, all of the impersonators that have existed in all of, of Star Trek and trade on that at the same time that sort of our A plot transforms into what we have. And that came about early in the discussions when Margaret said, you know, Kalis is available. Why don't you do something with Kalis? And as soon as I had that, all the dominoes fell and everything locked into place. And I realized I had all these questions about Kalis, one of my favorite characters, you know, from just his one appearance in the series. Uh, and everything about him, I realized would plug in to, you know, the, the you know, I, I realized the unsung would be this terrific group. You know, what, what, you know I, things I just, I figured out one at a time and I realized, oh my gosh, this has to work. When I realized that 2386 was 101 years after Trek 3. And uh, it was 100 years after the trial of James T. Kirk uh, and he gets set free and everything. It was just, you know, that that was sort of, you know, what what, what do they say on on uh, TV tropes? Fridge logic, where you just slap your you know, forehead and say, "Wow, this works. This is exactly how this puts together." And so that's how Korg came about, and Cross ends up replacing 
Ardra for the first two books, uh, but Ardra still was always going to be there. And, and you know, the unsung, I again, I had always loved, you know, Sins of the Father episode of, you know, Next Generation. That's really when that series took off for me, you know, even before, uh, you know, the Borg, you know, Best of Both Worlds. And I realized that's what my group of people should be, uh, you know, that are renegades. And how do we make the Federation responsible for it? Well, we just pull a Star Trek II trick. We, we pull SETI Alpha 5. We make Spock responsible for them being where they are. And again, as I said, all the tumblers fell into place at that point. And that's when I realized that, you know, here are the, the bigger, larger themes of the, the, the trilogy, which I can get into later here. Uh, but again, in the beginning, you're always trying to figure out, well, what are the plot mechanics? And you know, then once the plot is, is sort of laid out, you understand how the characters are going to be changed by this and then how the whole society gets changed by it. And, and then there along the way, you have to figure out some rip-roaring you know, action scenes uh, and set pieces like you're talking about. Well, and that's one of the things that I think, uh, you know, as you're putting all this together, one of the things I was kind of shocked at is, is the way you kept ratcheting up the tension with the f- different factions that I didn't necessarily see coming like the Breen or the Kinshara or the way that you would weave in these different races. And I just, I, the Breen thing just came out. I, I don't know why. Maybe I was just too wrapped up in the story, but I just didn't see that plot coming in. How did you make the decision to, um, which races to use and how to weave all this together? Because it, when I, when I look at the whole thing, this three act structure there is so much that happens in here, John. I don't know how you kept it all straight. Well, I had a, I had an Excel file. Um, <laughs> I literally, I literally did. Um, uh, but you know, what, one of the things that I realized I, I had, uh, you know, I had, a, I had, a, I had an ace in the hole here. And of course, you know, that's, that's a, that's an in joke as well with the ace. Um, but I, uh, I had an ace in the hole here, which was that I was writing all three at once. Uh, and I had the opportunity to go back and fiddle with some things as things evolved and so I had, for example, um, the character of Zokar and his relationship with the Romulans in book two. He is not in the original plot, but I knew all along I would have a character like that in book two. And then once I had him, I went back and I planted him in book one. You know, the Kanshaya were always going to be part of the thing that was in book three, but you'll notice that we make sure that the Kanshaya are not just pulled out of thin air in book three. You know, we put it right up front in book one that at least as far as I have decided, the House of Krug's territory was all stolen from the Kanshaya years ago. And, you know, he hunted them. And of course, hunting and prey is the huge, you know, thing we've got going on in, the, in this thing. And so I had those, I had that planted. You know, I decided that, you know, the Breen would be perfect because it would allow uh, a character like Shift. And, and again, you know, you mentioned ratcheting up the, uh, you know, the tension. It's by design that uh, we kind of have a shell game that at the end of book one, you realize, well, Korg was the villain of book one, but now we've got Cross. And Cross is the major villain of book two. And you get to the end of it and you realize, well, now Cross is dead or he may be or he may not be, but actually he is. But now there's a whole other villain 
shift that we didn't realize and a whole other faction involved. And oh, by the way. So it's kind of like uh, Star Trek whack-a-mole. Yeah. Like you get one and then another one pops and, up. And of course, Korg is still out there. And, you know, the, the, the wonderful thing about this from the beginning was as, you know, for a character that came along, uh, you know, later in my initial, you know, design, uh, this is, in a sense, Korg's story start to finish. And of course, you know, among the heroes, it is it is Kalis's and 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 Worf's story, and Valandris, and and of course Tuvok gets to to be the detective and all of this, which is going to be kind of fun because I'll see Tim Russ here this weekend. The Korg character, this is his opera. This is his odyssey from the beginning to the end. And if you actually put all the you know the Korg pieces in order. You know, I would never have written the book that way. But if you put him in order, you can see how he actually was able to do all the things he was able to do. And I saw somebody who was live tweeting the book who was going, well, now, wait, how would Korg have found out who these people are and how would he have discovered them? Well, that's what the entire middle section of book two is. Uh, so, you know, the part of part of the fun of having this big of a tableau, having a third of a million words almost to work with, uh, was that I knew I would have time to tell these stories. Well, speaking of, uh, you know, the major characters in each book, it kind of actually reminds me of a video game now that I think about it. You know, Korg's the big boss fight at the end. He's throughout the whole story, but you get the big boss fight. Um, but Shift is a character that I really loved. I thought her motivations were really fascinating what was the process for creating this character and, you know, things like her motivations for joining the Breen and that sort of thing that I, I just thought was really cool? Well, she was right there for the beginning. And what had happened is, you know, when, when, I, when I had seen in the fiction uh, how they had you know, decided that the Breen worked, you know, that they, it was this multi-ethnic, you know, multi-species outfit uh, and that it was naturally egalitarian but at the same time, I realized they were also really choosy. They, were, they are not the Borg. And we say in the book, they're not the Borg. They're not just going to take anybody. Uh, they're going to be selective. They're going to go for people who actually believe in what they believe in. And in a large sense, you know, of course, I did a lot of writing for Star Wars. Uh, there's something very Mandalorian about them. Uh, not just obviously in the armor, but the whole idea of the Mandalorians is to be a Mandalorian, you pretty much have to put on the suit and obey the rules, commit yourself to this higher you know, principle that they've got, which is in a lot of ways very Klingon. I, I've always thought that the, the, you know, the uh, sort of the, uh, the Mandalorians as, as constructed in, in EU fiction, uh, they're, they're very much you know, sort of another take on the Klingons, what we already saw in uh, in Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking about that while I was reading it. Well, you know, I... I I hate to go way too far down the rabbit hole with with Star Wars comparisons because, to be honest, this is, in a sense, what if I could have written Knights of the Old Republic, the comic series, all at once? <laughs> because, you know, we do have elements that are, you know, that at least echo, uh, you know, that, you know, the Covenant is actually being played by, uh, you know, a, a thwarted uh, Jedi figure, you know, kind of corresponds to Korg, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, there's there's a number of things like that, and, and of course we've got con, con artists galore. But I, you know, nothing really beats this series. I think in terms of the number of you know, impersonations and deceptions yes. and aliases I was able to do, and that's one way that the brain helped. 
because the brain were nothing if not inscrutable. You know, uh, people may not remember, but Thought Roge, I actually introduced back in Absent Enemies, which was the, the Titan ebook I did. And you probably don't remember it because he was in the suit. He didn't say anything. He was just there being, you know, creepy. You know, now we kind of have this backstory around him and we have a sense of why he was there, what he was doing. The, the two big themes that came out at the end, uh, I think, were the Klingons and their relationship to justice and the Klingons and their relationship to deception. And as I said, deception, clearly that was a big part of the, you know, the magic arc, a big, big part of the, the illusionist arc. And I did the math and uh, just for the heck of it one day. And uh, there are something like 13 or 14 impersonations in this book uh, or in this trilogy. And of course, it all revolves around the fact that right at the center of it, we have Kalos, who was created in a deception. We have Kalos, who is impersonating someone. That is his very being. And so, you know, around this, we've got Korg going by the name Galdor. We've got Cross impersonating Krug. We've got, you know, Shift impersonating Nakira. We've got you know, Potok you know, made to resemble Kalos. Four or five people look like Kalos in this thing. You know, Tuvok impersonates a Gorn at one point. Uh, you know, Kalos you know, hides his life signs at one point to hide on the ship. All of these things that, you know, are kind of, you know, all, everything having to do with impersonation and deception is right off the bat at odds with Klingon philosophy. Uh, and I wanted to tackle that and tangle with that. And again, that's where Krug came in really in handy because, I mean, this was a guy who, you know, uh, uh, the first we see of him, uh, against the the Federation is you know uncloaking for a sneak attack, uh, and I've always wondered you know what is what is the justification moral justification among the Klingons for you know saying hey you got to face your enemy you've got to you know fight people one on one, and at the same time spending all this technology on being unseen, and I realized and this is where the unsung help helped a lot I realized that the unsung cut off from honor would still be Klingons and would still be a hunting culture. And so, you know, that kind of deception is really a hunting tactic. You know, I almost said a Jedi. Uh, a, Klingon would not, a Klingon would not feel that it is wrong to hide in the bushes while stalking somebody or while stalking an animal. You know, that's, that's just part of what you deal with if you're in the wild. And it strikes me that that would be their justification for, you know, cloaking devices and that sort of thing. Yet at the same time, it would be wrong to fire on somebody while cloaked. And that gets us back to Star Trek VI. So, you know, all of these things sort of loop together. And, you know, as, as I said, I was, I was fortunate that I was even able to go back and draw on some of that research that I did into the hunters and their technology uh, and their demonstrated ability to beam through shields that we saw and because I, I remember I saw that it even looks different if you watch that episode of DS9 you know their beaming looks completely different than anything any other special effect uh and so I said hey let's 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 use this something that that jumped out to me while you were talking and I, I thought it was something that's really interesting in this story and it's not even our outline and I don't know why but this whole idea of the unsung and them having an idea 
and and a lot of them start to have an idea that what they're doing is wrong and it's not because of anything they've been taught it's because of this intrinsic sense of what is right and wrong that's in them especially for someone like Verlandris and others in the group and i thought that was really fascinating this idea because you know then Kalos comes along and helps them kind of give them their spiritual awakening uh, but I, I thought that that was really a fascinating thing of, of, of that idea that even if somebody hasn't heard of, you know, Klingon honor and these kind of things, that for Klingons, there was this sense that they knew because of, you know, that uh, as the, the, the right says when you get married, the Klingon beating hearts, there's nothing like it, that it's just almost wired in them, even if they've never heard it before and and i i really liked diving into this kind of idea of you know klingon spirituality and kind of seeing what that means for them in a much deeper level than i feel like we've ever gotten before and and that was great stuff. well that was that was intentional uh because i realized that Kalis and the unsung would be flip sides of the same coin uh you get into this whole nature nurture thing uh, is are the Klingons the way they are because it's ingrained in them or are the Klingons the way they are because of their culture, because they learn to be the way they are. And the unsung are all nature and no nurture. Uh, you know, I went to great efforts to make them seem, you would expect the state to take these people away as children from the people raising them because they're being raised <laughs> so horribly wrong. Um, it, yeah, they, there's no nurture at all. There's only the nature. And so all that they're left with is is just that sort of anger and rage at the beginning that hasn't been channeled anywhere and, and, and uh, you know, aggression. Whereas Kalis is 100% nurture. He was born, you know, again in a lab and he uh, was programmed with all of the lessons of their society. He was told, you know, you, you could almost say that he was brainwashed with all of the, you know, the facts of their, uh, of their society without ever actually, you know, really coming to those conclusions himself or having to have, you know, the leap of faith or the tests. And that was, again, when I realized how little he had been used. He, he had been used in the Michael Jan Friedman novel of the same name, and he's in about half of it because the other half is about the original Kalos, uh, the unforgettable. And so we get to see Kalos in battle there. And he turns up uh, again a couple of times, pretty much to be retired in, in, in the early 2000s. And it struck me that, you know, this guy would be adrift, uh, uh, you know, in retirement for however many years. What good would he be? What would be you know, his situation? Uh, and so that is why this you know, trilogy is, uh, in a sense, it's Kalis's voyage as well, because he goes from having no purpose uh, and, you know, having these questions of whether he is deserving of any of the honors or attention that he's ever had. And, you know, he's able to discover this group of people that, you know, they actually change his heart because he sees that there is a uh, Klingon in them, uh, so to speak. And that even they, uh, even they, that's, that's almost a phrase you, uh, in quotes, even they can be Klingon. Uh, and that's what, 
it sort of was the surprise, I think, of this trilogy for a lot of people, or I hope will be, because again, it starts being this political thriller, but if you want to read it this way, it's the beginning of the Klingon Reformation. It is, it is the beginning of Klingons looking at their own, their own history, their own culture, their own tenets, and then looking at the stuff that's happened in the last 25 years or so. You know, Klingons acting like Klingons would not have, uh, you know, done anything that the House of Duras did. Uh, Klingons right. acting like Klingons would not have done what uh, General Chang did. Uh, there's got to be something there where for those guys, you know, the, the nature was fine, but the nurture wasn't enough. They've got to deal with that. And in particular, with regard to the ending, they definitely have to deal with their justice system. How, in terms of punishment, you know, you look at all the different ways that punishment is, is, is addressed in this. I mean, you have the Klingons where, you know, the condemnation of, of discommendation, uh, and boy, did I misspell that word 55 times, uh, discommendation. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it, is, it is punitive. You know, it's, an, it's this innate response of you're no longer Klingon and that's it for you. But it's also punitive in the sense that it's, it's all, your, all your friends and neighbors and all your, your, your children unborn yet. And that does sort of tie into this, you know, Klingon aggressiveness uh, thing where, you know, if you offend me, I will burn your whole town down. Uh, (laughs) That that you get the sense that that was the way it was back in the old days. But at the same time, you get the sense that, you know, this is, if you want to look at Kalis and yeah, particularly that that book that uh, that that yeah, Keith did uh, Candido the uh, the uh, you know, the art of war, to look at Kalis's writings just as themselves, you know that's almost like the Klingon Kulinar, uh, or it could be. It's almost like they're uh, this is where we're gonna this is where we're gonna figure out how to channel our aggressions and figure out what honor really means and start putting some lids on some kinds of behaviors that. This is honorable in combat. This is not honorable in combat. If you pull a knife on me and I pull a disruptor, that's not cool. You know, that, that is something that is not proportionate. Well, discommodation is not proportionate. Uh, it is, it is uh, you know, something where, you know, in, in our world, we would, we would say that that's cruel and unusual. Um, and, you know, they just don't have a bill of rights. Uh, so... Uh, but but again, you know, this this whole you know theory of justice goes across, or rather, punishment, kind of goes across. You know, the Federation is about rehabilitation. Spock's gives Khan a second chance uh, by putting him on, uh, putting him on uh, on that planet. Uh, you know, he he sees that the the unsung, or rather, General Potok, deserves a chance to you know try and find out his his own life on his own without people coming after him. Uh, but at the same time, we also had strains in the Federation of, you know, we, we talk about you know, all the different you know, experiments with punishment and justice that were in the TV shows, uh, you know, where they would have to erase people's brains or something like that. Or, uh, you know, the original series had two or three of these. Uh, and, you know, Thyanoga is uh, represented in this trilogy uh, as sort of the stand-in for the leftover of that, that era of you know here's where we're just going to drop people, you know so so there's so there's that, 
but you know we have we have some different strains. I mean, and look look how look how we respond to it in the book. Picard realizes that Ardra doesn't need to go back to jail. She needs community service, and that's literally what we give them. You know, she gets to redeem her actions, and her other people get to redeem their actions. So so theirs is about redemption. Atonement is different, and atonement is what Kalis sentences the unsung to, uh, because I think it was very important that the unsung not get away with what they did, uh, even though they were, you know, under Krug's thrall, even though he, you know, the fake Krug, they were under his spell. I could not let them walk away with what they did. They had to do something that you know, everybody would would say, okay, Hey, that's that's cool. Uh, that's that's a place for them to be. And you know, when I when I realized this, I knew there was no other place for them to wind up uh, than on Spirit's Forge, literally standing in the steads of the people that they killed. And and that's something that just I as as you're talking, I'm thinking about how you weaved into the story this idea of the truth crafters. But that that went ju- that went far beyond just the circle about the way in which everybody's using a story or a narrative, even ones they tell themselves. Like Korg wants to believe that he's Krug's heir, even though he's not. But he tells himself that so much he buys it. You know, Ordek wants to believe she can serve Krug, uh, and that it's true. But it it's not in the end. And uh, I loved the way that you use the truth crafters, creating these illusions to the ways in which, you know, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but facts and truth, the real truth, will actually win in the end. Because no matter what narrative you, you're telling yourself, whether it, it, it's it's got to align with the cold, hard facts, it's got to align with the truth. That's right. You know, Ardra, when we meet her, and again, as I said, she was in this from the beginning, so... I was wanting to deal with, from the beginning, this notion of people who were so talented at deception that they could undermine a religion, that, that they could actually supplant someone. Uh, you know, here we have in Ardra, you know, what do we see when we meet Ardra? Well, she's, she's you know, portraying, uh, you know, this devil figure. In fact, we know her by no other name in this entire series because I was never told what her real name was or if she had a real name. So we just stuck with Arthur the whole time. <laughs> uh, but that puts her in an interesting contrast with Kalis, who again was created for the exact same purpose, except with different motives and different reasons. The you know the clerics of the you know the uh, of of the monastery at you know Boreth Monastery, they created. Uh, you know, Kalis with all good intention. Ardra did the exact same thing, uh, you know, to try to take over another culture with the absolute opposite intention. And, you know, that's why I wanted to show Cross uh, in the middle of this saying, hey, you know what? Uh, if I can play Krug, I can play Kalis. And, um, you know, there's a real threat there for a while that, uh, you know, he could take over an entire empire. But uh, again, you know, I always had the plan that in every version of the story, uh, you know, shift wax cross at the end of book two. He he's a lightweight compared to her, and and she is uh, she is there, uh, you know, to to use him just like everybody is there using everybody else. And um, 
you know, it, it in order to beat her, uh, you've got to have the Federation, you know, the Starfleet characters figure out what's going on. And and this is the thing with the with the trilogy. You know, there's so much weight uh, on the Klingon characters, on Worf and on uh, Kalis, and on the the you know the magic themed characters of the Circle. You know, one of the struggles that I had that I I was always concerned about was making sure that the Federation, the Starfleet characters, uh, acted heroically and had some successes as the trilogy continued. They had to always be a step behind, but in every book, in every novel, they get one step ahead at a critical point, and that changes the plans of the characters involved until finally at the end they succeed outright. But the Federation could not be allowed to completely succeed in book one or in book two. Uh, but you know, if, if it weren't for you know, Jordy figuring out how to f- begin to find the unsung and if it weren't for uh Riker you know seeing the ace of clubs which again I, I just I love that whole bit I actually have those playing cards from 1932 I got I, I got nice. I got them off of eBay just to, just to have um oh that's cool <laughs> yeah it's uh they made a few of them and and oh I mean, and this, you know we're talking about found wonderful things you know, discovering that uh you know that you know, all these jazz performers that I knew Riker was going to like had played at that uh, exposition and realizing that the Chicago exposition 30 years earlier, the first one, Houdini had worked the place, uh, you know, along with uh, a number of his rivals. Uh, you know, that was that was just a blast. I mean, you know, that that kind of stuff to be able to plug that in. I think Riker rattling that stuff off was just about my favorite character moment of his in these books. <laughs> no, it, it it was. And yeah, I, I can't pretend that I knew all that stuff myself beforehand. But I, uh, I, I this is what research is for. Um, yeah, I, I wish I'd put in the acknowledgments that I, I actually did write read quite a bit about Houdini and a lot of the illusionists uh, of that generation, because in a sense, uh, you know, a lot of people forget that you know, Houdini had this life as an entertainer, as an illusionist, but his second calling was debunking uh, frauds. And that is really the role that the Federation is playing there. And, you know, for example, in the second book, the moment where the Federation gets a step ahead uh, is is where they're able to actually catch Cross. Uh, they just don't catch him entirely. They don't. They're not aware that Shift is out there. That there's this other player in the game. Uh, but you know, in all these cases, I'm trying to make sure that there are some victories, but they cannot win outright. And at the same time, you know, if they didn't win ever, uh, you know, they would all. You know, they just look like a bunch of schmucks to this whole thing, and it wouldn't. It wouldn't have worked. But you know, we don't do that. We have Riker hiding an army in the ocean. Uh, we, we, you know, our people are actually, you know, you know thinking ahead of time. And you know, they're using deception as often as the others are, but in a good sense. And yet the one place, and here's a key, the one place where I would not let them use deception was to change the Kinshaya's behavior. Picard gives a speech that, you know, we can't just send our own fake God in there to you know, tell them to stop the war uh, because they've already been ill-used. They've already been, you know, this this has already happened to them. 
So what we're going to have to do is, uh, you know, we're going to have to do the only thing we've got left, which is to show them the man behind the curtain. There's nothing. That was awesome. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing that. The problem is, in order to do that, you've got to get Ardra to be willing to betray her code within the circle that the circle has that we don't show how we did our tricks. And, you know, she, she, uh, she comes around to a degree. Yeah, I really enjoyed that entire scene as well. Um, the fact that her version of the god was just slightly better, too, I thought was a really nice touch. One thing I, I did want to talk a little bit about was uh, this series almost seems by the end to be kind of a celebration of this alliance between the Federation and the Empire. And the the challenge that uh, Korg issues to the Federation really does turn into kind of a celebration of that grand alliance. I was kind of wondering, like, your thoughts on that relationship between the Federation and the Empire, because I always kind of feel like that there's there's got to be a lot of strain there. And this trilogy, for sure, you know, shows a lot of that kind of tension being played with here. Uh, what are your kind of thoughts about how that whole alliance plays out? Well, the trilogy is what my big thought about it. I mean, it's uh, in a sense uh, that it's it's. It is, I, I tried to bring up all of the you know, contradictions that were inherent in it right there. The book ends, or the trilogy ends on a single Klingon line, and I won't try to like read the Klingon version, but it was, we succeed together in a greater whole. That tied into that notion at the very beginning that I had of this Makochvan, um, the, you know, the, this this celebration of allies who have uh, or, or rivals rather who have come together to ally against a third party uh, against a common enemy that seemed to me like the kind of alliance that the 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 klingons would go for and respect the federation were rivals they you know found other people to fight together and that was cool uh, that was that was you know what they what they wanted and it was so important that when Narendra does, uh, yeah, in the in the other universe, when Narendra falls without the the uh, Enterprise B there, it's or Enterprise C rather, it's enough to start a war. And so that struck me that this would have to be a continual thing, as far as the Klingons were concerned, that they were gonna ha we were going as the, as Starfleet, we're gonna have to continually prove ourselves and and demonstrate that we're worthy and constantly say yeah okay yeah we're we may we, we're not identical we're not equal we're growing in different directions uh we're not going to agree on anything but the greatest you know the, you know the 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 biggest speech in this book is in spock's mouth uh about the alliance and that's there at the end where he says you know look you know we're never going to be exact equals or we're not twins you know, we're going to take over some space. Uh, you know, we're going to get members in some territory that you want and, uh, and vice versa. You got to see the big picture. Uh, and so as long as, as long as the Federation, as long as Starfleet acts honorably in concert with the, with the Klingons on the important stuff, well, the Klingons will continue to accept a, an alliance with the Federation. At the same time, uh, the Klingons, you know, have had to rein in some of their, well, pretty much all the behaviors they need to rein in 
are the ones that Kalos, the emperor, wants to see them reigning in anyway. The uses of deception to do this or that or the other thing. It certainly doesn't do to have an alliance with the Klingons when you've got you know, a house of Duras that is in there that is willing to do the things that it does uh, or, yeah. or Korg, uh, you know, and, and what he's willing to do, you know, Korg, I, one thing I was very happy with is they, uh, is that they let me do this in real time where it's a three month story because that's how long I figured it would, it would, you know, the minimum amount of time that it would legitimately take for, you know, this guy to come from nowhere seemingly from nowhere he's been around for a hundred years but to come seemingly from nowhere and be able to nearly pull off this coup uh and uh the thing is he nearly wins you know if it weren't for a number of key things happening a few jenga blocks here and there coming out of this thing if uh you know one or two things had gone differently you know you don't get uh the enterprise you know fighting at narendra you uh, don't get, you know, the unsung fighting at Keterix. You know, a, an example of how well Korg played it, even to the end, is that right up to the end, I mean, one of my one of my favorite moments of book three that I, again, I realized, oh my gosh, I have to do this, was having Kalis and Worf save Korg and not have any idea that there's anything wrong. Because again, they don't. Mm -hmm. uh you know they they uh, that was one of the tricky things all along was knowing that you know uh, that wharf was you know uh, away from everybody else and Kalos had been away from everybody else and they didn't have all this information but no i mean if if wharf had not gone back to try to save Kalos, uh or actually wasn't trying to save Kalos, but trying to get Kalos into stovacor if he had not gone back uh to confront the unsung uh you know the unsung don't turn up at Keterix and, uh, and you have Korg probably running the, uh, the empire at this point. Well, and one of the things that I, I, I remember reading at the end of book three that I really liked about what the judge, the Klingon judge says, and I think this really applies to, you know, the, the Federation alliance with the Klingons, but also just in general is that important battles aren't forgotten. Uh, and that, it really kind of struck home the importance then of remembering and knowing history and being its student so we can recognize the truth about things and also learn the lessons from it. And I I really saw this as a wonderful history lesson for the Klingons and the Federation to remember why they have been in this alliance for so long and why it's been so beneficial and the importance of of continuing to remember that history as Klingons love to do except, in song. Except, and this is what's this, this, this is where it, this is where it ties into our, our overarching narrative. The Klingons are all about memorial, memorializing people in song and memorializing events, but the unsung are unsung. They, they, right. They're erased. They are forgotten. And that's the wrong thing to do. And that's one of the, that's one of the, if there's a lesson in the, in the book about that, it's that, you know, by erasing everything that happened to Potok from history, uh, you know, it caused a lot of problems later on. And, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I would, yeah, I have no idea what other authors will pick up on, but I certainly would like to see 
um, you know, you you have Martok saying, you know, we're going to revisit this whole thing of, you know, we're going to wipe out uh, seven generations uh, whenever the individual is discommendated. And, you know, do you think that they're, do you think they're actually going to forget the person's name anymore? <laughs> I, mean, I think they're going to make a point of remembering uh, because otherwise there's going to be a database. Yeah, it's going to be a Klingon database. It's going to be like a homeland security for Klingons. Or, so. or it could be done something like this. Uh, and in fact, that's that's kind of suggested by the novel. Uh, uh, well, the, the 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 Klingons can forget, but the Federation won't. Mm, that's true. Mm. That's very true. I like that idea. They so they, they again they're finding a way to to work together to their strengths. Because the Federation forgets nothing. I mean, that's true. You know, we, we're memory alpha, baby. I mean, we got everything. That's right. We got everything. Uh, we got we, we got memory beta too. We we have it all. And and in fact, again, you know, that is that line was the last line of the uh, of the of the actual you know the the manuscript, not counting the the last quote in the book. Uh, you know, that line was always there. Uh, you know, from as soon as I came up with the core character, Riker saying, "I'm a Klingon," and Riker saying, "Not anymore." Uh, but Riker being the one to actually arrest him and say, you know, they, they, you may, you, they, they may have turned their backs on you, but we're not going to forget, you know, what happens to Korg next. I don't know. I don't, uh, I don't, I, I actually can see a variety of different paths to go forward uh, from this trilogy that pick up on some things. Korg is not really one of them. I think he's, uh, I, I'd like to see him remain where he's at. You know, one of the things, John, that I would love to see you pick up on and, and talk just a little bit about, too, is Captain Dax, <laughs> who I have to say is quickly becoming one of my favorite captains in the 24th century. Uh, she has kind of the quippiness of like a Kirk, but some of the diplomatic nature of a Picard and of the fire of a Cisco. And I just I feel like. Man, I'd love to see you get the opportunity to do some Aventine books because mm -hmm. I think she has a great crew with her yeah. and a fun ship to play with, and you write her so well. Here, here, I second that for sure. Well, the the thing with the thing with Aventine, you know, whether there could be a book directly, you know, like that, I I, I don't know because again, and this was the problem with Takedown, uh, you know. Aventine doesn't exist as an individual brand because the general public doesn't know what Aventine is. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a TV show thing. You could have a Kalos book, uh, and they have. Uh, you, could have you could have a variety of other things. Uh, you know, it might be a harder sell. You know, they, they've done it. I mean, they've created other ships and you know, done this, you know, this, uh, this series or that one, you know, based on that. But uh, I, I think the... You know, one of the one of the challenges with Aventine is simply that she is the only screen character in the entire crew. And to a degree, that gives you a lot of freedom to do what you want to do. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there it, it gets it gets tricky. You know, I one of the things in in my writing is that with the exception of the sequences with the villains, I think in Prey, there are maybe one or two scenes at most that don't have at least one screen character in them. And I, I kind of defer to that in a sense, because I think that that's a useful, I don't want to say crutch, but it's a, it's a, it's a lifeline for the reader 
in in a lot of ways in that I have to expect that the person who has just picked up my book has not read, you know, Takedown, has not read any of the other, you know, the Destiny trilogy, uh, all the stuff that, that uh, you know, we would consider to be, you know, more or less required reading or, or, you know, or whatever, uh, you know, I can't assume that. And so, you know, that's the challenge every time. Uh, and, you know, I guess one of the problems and, you know, I, I, every book that I've done, doesn't matter what it is, doesn't matter what franchise, there are always little errors here and there. You know, almost all of the, the uh, of the errors where they happen usually have to do with, you know, the ranks or the eye color or something of one of the, the not, you know, not the screen characters. Uh, because the screen characters, you at least have, you know, multiple sources to go look at. Um, whereas, you know, you're kind of more, uh, relying on your own memory from the other books and, you know, everybody else on the team's memory from the other books uh, and whether or not that stuff has gotten loaded into uh, memory beta or, or anything else when it comes to things like uh, what characters look like. So uh, one, one of my, one of my sort of, I, I, I kind of wonder if the, if the joke behind Captain Vale and her hair isn't that, you know, somebody probably got it wrong at one time and, and uh, they decide, well, this will be a shtick. She's going to have a different color hair every time, like Mrs. Slocum and all those episodes of Are You Being Served? It'll be a shtick. It'll be a thing that we do. I'm wondering, with, with completing this massive trilogy here uh, in the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, uh, what is, what's going to be coming up next for you, John? Will you be working uh, with any more Star Trek, and, and what else do you have coming down the pipeline? Well, I, uh, I, took, uh, I took some time off here, <laughs> so, because the thing was, when I finished the trilogy, it didn't really end, uh, because I in- immediately went into... Uh, three months of intensive, you know, proofreading uh, of all three books at once or overlapping. Uh, and as soon, you know, I, I don't think the third book was off my table uh, when suddenly I was promoting book one's release uh, and then book two's release and book three's release. And of course I had a couple of Halo books come out in there too, uh, you know, uh, short stories and comics. I uh, have some projects, personal projects that I had backburnered for a while that uh, I, uh, I am looking at. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as we get into the winter here, uh, I will uh, be more aggressive with the, with the keyboard. Uh, but, you know, certainly, you know, Star Trek, one of you tweeted earlier that it was, uh, you know, it was fun, uh, that this, this trilogy was fun. And, yeah, that's really it as far as I'm concerned. It's, it, it's got to be yeah, you know, I, I I've been doing tie-in fiction for 10, 12 years almost now, and uh, I I kind of I, you know I've done it when it's been a job, uh, when it's you know just a paycheck, and I've done it when it's been something that you know where I where I've loved the franchise, where I've loved the story I was telling, where I've had a lot of fun with it, um, and um, and you know that's always better because the reader can tell. Uh, the reader can tell, and you know when when you're not enthused about it yourself, or when you're not heavily into it yourself, uh, the the reader can sense your enthusiasm if you are into it. Uh, and so, you know, whatever I do next, uh, you know, in a tie-in sense, you know, I would hope it would be something that uh, you know it would be, uh, you know, going forward, it would always be something that uh, you know I would have that feeling about. 
that you know I am in the audience for this book. That this is something that uh, you know that uh, that is just a lot of fun. Star Trek specifically, you know, I, I uh, we will we will see. I I, I can I can I'll say a, a Kalis book seems kind of tempting. Uh, but at the same time, I've been, uh, and, and you know, now he has a supporting cast and a ship, uh, but, uh, at the same time, uh, and you can bring in Alexander because, oh, yeah. uh, apparently he's got a girl who likes his prospects, which look pretty had to be there. the funniest part of the book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I'm glad you like that because I, I realize you know, that's the only way this can end. Um, I, I do not, you know, I, I. I, I am not a member of the school that every female character is going to immediately fall for whichever uh, you know hero is they've been exposed to in the book and, and uh, you know if you if you read between the lines you know uh, Worf has got you know 15 16 years on her anyway I mean he's he's uh, he's, he's at least uh, in his 40s at this point uh, in the in the storyline. And you know our, our sense was that she's in her you know, mid twenties. Kalis could be interesting. Uh, you know whether that's something that they would want to do. I I know they haven't done a, a, a they they haven't done just a straight Klingon uh, line in some time. But uh, you know I I was I was glad to try to get as many Klingon faces that people knew in there. Um, you know Clag. I was glad to be able to get in there. I uh, wish I'd called him a general instead of a captain, but we'll get that fixed in the ebook. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I have this, I have this naval thing that I just, if they're in, if they're running a ship, I call them a captain and I just shouldn't do that. Well, John, I, I know too, you've got a, a great place where everybody can catch up with all the stuff that you're putting out. You, you do a lot of behind the scenes for your books uh, and, and you're pretty active on social media. So let everybody know where they can find you so they can catch up with where you're going to be at a con or uh, or just be able to talk to you about your books on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter, they can find me at JJM Faraway. On uh, the Facebook, they can find me at John Jackson Miller. Uh, on uh, you know my regular website is uh, farawaypress.com, which has behind-the-scenes articles on just about everything I've ever done. And also there's my web store there where people can get signed uh, copies of the trilogy, which uh, will be just in time for the holidays. Uh, and um, also, um, uh, there's all this, uh, all sorts of little fun trivial bits. I just did the uh, the takedown trivia page a couple of months ago. Uh, I'll get around to the, uh, the one for Prey pretty soon. Uh, and there's just so many fun little things in here. I, I'm surprised that nobody caught the word game that, it, that, 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 is, uh, that is hidden in there the magic word game that is involved with all of the act titles, all the section titles. Uh, I, I, I think that that will be something, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just do it real quick for the book one. Uh, act one is Krug's blood. Act two is Spock's test. Act three is, um, is Krug's fire and act four is Korg's target. Well, of course, if you take the last word from each of those possessives, you get blood, blood, test, test, fire, fire, target, target, prey. Uh, <laughs> all, all three books work exactly the same way like that. And again, that was That's sort of awesome. Little, well, and again, it didn't need to be done, but I, I could not have a book that or a trilogy that, you know, the, had all these magicians running through it. And there are a dozen magic words that are mentioned in this thing. 
because there's certainly the magic words that the you know that the you know the the illusionists use. We have uh, Worf talking about the magic words of Klingon culture, uh, you know, courage and bravery and everything else. And of course, we have all these code words that the uh, the Federation uses. Alamo and uh, Aphrodite and all of that to make things happen. Uh, and so that was just another one of my little layered things in there. And that's the kind of thing people are going to be able to find on the website and you know, stuff that I spent way too much time on, uh, you know, one day in January last year. Well, John, I, I really am, am so glad. I, I, this trilogy was the perfect way for me to wrap up Star Trek's 50th anniversary. And so Thank you for spending some time with us to talk about it. And honestly, I really do hope that uh, Pocket picks you back up for some more Star Trek books because I am really enjoying all of your entries so far. Well, I definitely appreciate it. And I, I appreciate the support from the show all along. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm thrilled that we were able to get this thing out in the 50th anniversary and not have any part of it be late. So <laughs> I, I, I live long and prosper, everybody. And, uh, or to put it another way, Kapla. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on. You're, you're always welcome on the show. Thanks a lot. Much appreciated. Well, Matthew, I mean, I say this a lot, but every time we get to speak with one of the authors, it's always a thrill. And especially this time around uh, with this Prey trilogy, you know, I, I feel like when a kind of newcomer comes to Star Trek literature, there's a little bit of trepidation you know, you don't have the stalwarts that have been around for years. And if you don't know John Jackson Miller's other work, you might be a little scared that maybe he doesn't know this whole Star Trek thing. But I can say with the references and his deep knowledge of Star Trek, I, I was just absolutely blown away with his knowledge of all things Star Trek. No, I Dan, I'm right there with you. This is fantastic Star Trek stuff. And as I said in, in the interview with him, you know, I really feel like this was the perfect way to wrap up the 50th anniversary I, I, with paying homage to Star Trek VI, which is my favorite Star Trek movie still, and its 25th anniversary this year. Uh, it just was a, a fantastic experience. Uh, and, and I love the fact that John is so passionate about everything that he does, any of the tie-ins that he's writing, in, and it really shines through in, in his work here with the whole Prey trilogy. Uh, so I had a quick question bef before we just kind of wrap everything up, Dan. What did you end up thinking about the Prey Trilogy as a whole and, and just kind of um, what it kind of says, I think, about maybe where you know, Star Trek books can go in 2016 and beyond? Well, Matthew, this trilogy, I, I do have to say, like you said, was just really a great celebration trilogy for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. It really did feel like a bit of a love letter uh, to Star Trek. You know, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of really great action. And especially with this third book, some really nice tie-ins to, you know, the Star Trek history as a whole. You know, the whole kind of uh, tying it back to the events of Kirk's generation and really a celebration of what Star Trek is and, and what a lot of the themes and stuff in Star Trek are. Uh, I, I really have to say, I think I enjoyed this trilogy a lot more than I thought I would. And that's not to say that I wasn't expecting great things, but it, it really, it was good in a way that I wasn't anticipating. You know, it was one of those things that when I was done, I was grinning because of the way it ended and just the feelings it left me with. Uh, definitely 
definitely one of the highlights of Trek literature, I think, from the past few years. No, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I think that this trilogy has got to be some of the most fun that I've had just in a Star Trek series in a, in a while. It, it just, there was a sense of vibrancy and, and freshness and, and I, every, you know, captain or crew member from any of the crews that they used, I was loving, you know, having uh, somebody like Clag show up. I mean, just all of these little things and the, the details that they were using were, were just phenomenal. And I have to say, Dax, I need more Dax. I just give me more Dax. I, I don't know why we we can't have more Aventine. Uh, it it just needs to happen. So pocketbooks, please, if you're listening, I am imploring you, find a way to get Ezri Dax and her crew into more things because you know you you allowed a story to be written where we put her in the captaincy of a ship, but then if we never really do much with her. Um, it's kind of a loss. You know, I'd rather just have her on Deep Space Nine still, you know? Um, and so let's give her her due. She really deserves it. And as Dan is showing me right now, everybody could see it. He's got this beautiful picture. He's got this beautiful picture of Nicole DeBoer signed by her. And I actually have one too. It's up on my wall. I I can't really pull it down because I can't reach it right now because I'm podcasting. Uh, But uh, I love it. It says, uh, format, lots of love, Nicole DeBoer. So uh, thank you, Nicole DeBoer, for making Prey Trilogy. But you didn't have anything to do with it. But just thank you for being you. Um, (laughs) And uh, thank you, John Jackson Miller, for creating in that character somebody I just want to see more of. And that's the kind of stuff that we got in this series. So crossing my fingers that we get more. Here, here. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dan, uh, we, we kind of mix things up. There are a bunch of different places that people can find the show. Of course, Twitter, at uh, Trek FM. Uh, we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. Uh, there's the listeners only discussion group on Facebook, which is the Babel Conference. Type Babel into the search field there on Facebook. Or if you click discussion on any of the menu bars at our website trek.fm you'll take you right there uh and then of course uh we've got speakpipe.com slash trek.fm you can leave us voicemail trek.fm slash contact allows you to choose a show choose literary treks and the email comes to dan bruce and i and one really cool last place that's special to us dan is the Goodreads group, and and I, I love that what we're able to do over there. Definitely, yeah. The Goodreads group allows us to have bookshelves that have all of the books that we've covered in past episodes of Literary Treks, as well as a special bookshelf that shows the books that are coming up. So you can keep up to date and follow along with the shows as they come out and keep up to date with everything that we're reading. Just go to goodreads.com and search for Literary Treks. Ask to join the group and we'll let you right in. And of course, in that group, there's also great discussions happening about all the books and comics in the Star Trek universe. Well, we just want to say a huge thank you to John Jackson Miller for being here. And another big thank you to our associate producers here uh, through Patreon. We've got Ken Tripp, Brandon Shamatella, Bruce Gibson, and Norman Lau. Thank you so much, guys, for supporting us and the network. And... This is a big thing. We're, we're a listener-supported network here. 
And there really is no way that we can do this network without you guys. And as we move into 2016, we really do need your support. So I encourage you to go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and seize the ways that you can help us make sure all the content across Trek FM keeps coming to you each and every week. We appreciate all the support that we get from you. And we ask you, if you haven't, and you appreciate what we do, uh, find a way to, to maybe just a little bit every month. It makes certain that all of the content that we do comes to you. So again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>